To recognize the true power of data and AI, it needs to be widely accessible and democratized within your organization. In this podcast series, Journeys to Democratize, we talk to technology and business leaders on their challenges and battle scars as they made data and AI widely accessible and self-service within their organization. I'm your host, Sandeep Uttamchandani, author of the O'Reilly book, The Self-Service Data Roadmap. My guest today is Kayur Desai, the former CDO of TD Ameritrade. In this episode, I talked to Kayur about his battle scars in two areas. First, uh, building a data strategy, and second, uh, a self-service platform across the enterprise. Kayur has over 30 years of experience managing and monetizing data and analytics. He's created data-driven organizations and driven enterprise-wide data strategies. He's driven all the way from data governance to machine learning to data literacy, pervasive self-service analytics, and the list goes on. Across his career, he has focused on multiple industries, financial, technology, retail, manufacturing, to name a few. Super excited. Welcome to the show, Kayur. Thank you, Sandeep. I appreciate you having me. When you level set, when you think of data strategy, what, what, what does it typically include? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think there's a lot of grayness with regards to uh, the phrase data strategy. Um, and what it means to different people. And I would say if I were to average out um, the common perception of what a data and analytic strategy is to most people in data, it, it, it's unfortunately the definition of, you know, what, what, is, uh, what tools am I gonna be using to do what uh, technical activity. And the reality is that the business's expectations of what a data and analytic strategy are, are, are markedly different. And to them, what it is, is that a data and analytics strategy is a set of data initiatives and analytics initiatives that will be brought together to help them achieve their business outcomes. And their business outcomes are the ilk of increasing revenue by X percentage points, um, decreasing attrition by Y uh, 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 um, you know, percentage points. Right? Those are the types of outcomes they want to achieve. And uh, a data and analytics strategy defines uh, various aspects um, to, to basically decompose into data initiatives and analytics initiatives that will be used in order to service uh, those, those target outcomes. So that is really what a data analytics strategy is, is, is what are the initiatives, uh, what are the priorities of the initiatives, um, and the priorities um, kind of uh, have, you know, have sort of two diverging axes, if you will. First being, you know, you want to prioritize these data and analytics initiatives based upon the priority of the business outcomes desired. But the challenge with that also is that it's, it's, it's not um, uh, uh, given that if you prioritize your data analytics initiatives by the business outcomes you're looking for, that your technical infrastructure will be neatly built on top of each other also. So you've got to balance your need to sort of build your technical infrastructure as you're going through your phases, as opposed to, you know, ripping out certain pieces just to then build the next phase of your uh, roadmap. Um, you've got to prioritize that along with uh, the priorities of the business outcomes and really create your sort of co-created roadmap with the business. 
And the other thing about data analytics strategy is that it is never singularly built by a data analytics organization. It is absolutely co-created um, between the business and the data analytics function. And it is not a one-time uh, thing. It is a continual thing. In fact, I've gotten to the point where I've created agile teams to ensure that as your business strategy changes, the corresponding changes to the data analytics strategy occur in pretty much real time too, right? And so it's a continuous living and breathing uh, effort. Um, and it's actually creating the need for a whole set of new roles, which until now have, have not even been recognized in the industry. You mentioned about priorities and really having that defined. Can you share an example or so of challenges that you typically run in, in defining priorities with the broader business? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a general realization uh, in business teams as well as uh, the line of business executive leaders that, you know, data has this ability to create outside business outcomes, right? They, they know that. Um, but given that they know that and there's increasing volume um, around it, uh, you're going to find as a data analytics leader that, um, you know, everybody wants to be priority number one regardless of the impact their particular initiative will have on the corporate strategy. And so then the question is, well, if you've got all lines of businesses coming to you and you know, wanting you to prioritize them, how do you have a fact-based conversation, you know, being a data organization, want to be fact-based, uh, around where the priorities ought to lie? And so this is where um, I was kind of uh, lucky that back in 2005, uh, came across this problem and really since then I've been working on a solution and uh, I'm at the point right now where I feel we've got the right solution and it comes down to one thing. Um, early on in my career, I actually worked with the team that invented the PET scan and my job was to write uh, the uh, stochastic mathematics to figure out where did the signal come from, from you know, people's heads and what's the right level of intensity and you know, writing the code to then put it on the right part of the screen. So if you can do that, which is, you know, random fuzzy mathematics, why can't we apply that type of mathematics to a very deterministic problem? Like, you know, what we face every day with regards to cross-sell, upsell, and the impact of data, and the impact of latency on the data, impact of quality of data on these types of things, on these types of outcomes that uh, companies are looking for. So I started to do that, and I got to the point where um, I felt there was a need for a new role, um, a new role that subsequently I call a data economist, and their job is to essentially create a mathematical twin of um, the outcome that we're trying to achieve with the business and backtrack that into how different attributes of data as well as different attributes of the analytic system and the different attributes of the uh, technical system as well as different attributes of the business people using the system contribute to the outcome. They would model that mathematically. If I decrease latency by this much, what's the impact on the outcome, right? If you're doing a cross-sell upsell system and my uh, data is gonna be uh, a, you know, a week old instead of a couple hours old, that is going to result in material attrition uh, in, in your revenue numbers, right? And so what is that? So there's a lot of data out there, there's a lot of AV testing that can be done to help create these models. And um, I realized the value in, in, in having these models 
really input into the prioritization process because what ends up happening is through these mathematical models, you can now estimate uh, not only whether you're going to be able to meet um, the business objective or the business outcome, but you can now uh, model out the earnings per share impact within the company. And so now imagine you've got all these lines of businesses, each with tons of initiative being created. Um, who's number one, who's number two, who's number three? Well, um, we can prioritize now by earnings per share impact, right? And if that is the sole metric, I would say that that's a good starting point by which to then um, engage with the line of business leaders and their uh, you know, first line leaders in a conversation around, well, here's the earnings per share impact. You know, we should prioritize by this as well as our ability to build out the technical infrastructure, you know, uh, by truly building it out as opposed to rip and replace and, you know, rip certain components out as we, as we migrate phases. And so um, based on that, we can come out with a fact-based proposed prioritization and engage with these cross-functional executives in a conversation as to why we're pro pro proposing it this way. And at that point, what you begin to find is that the conversation um, around me first and, you know, um, everybody wanting to be first begins to die down because now we've got a basis by which to prioritize, right? And I've actually seen this in action, right? Um, in my last role where, you know, it was very much a noise-based prioritization. And what happened with the noise-based prioritization is that you know, there's this feeling that, you know, data analytics really doesn't deliver much because a lot of what we end up delivering is tactical improvements because that's essentially the vision that the business people have for data analytics. We've been in data analytics long enough to know that it can be strategic uh, in terms of outcomes. And so we can help design it as well as prioritize it. And through this approach, um, you can have a much, much healthier conversation around prioritization and, and, and make sure that everybody buys in. Typically, as you're sort of setting the expectation, so there's prioritization, but there's also setting expectations with respect to what's feasible, right? So if you're creating a machine learning model, and the accuracy of the max, the best accuracy one can get, or freshness of dashboards and interactive analytics, um, can you share any examples on how you sort of try to weed some of those mis-expectations out early as well? Yeah, so, you know, I think a lot of these conversations around, you know, um, freshness of dashboard, accuracy of models are all related to, um, uh, you know, we have a lot of conversations around these topics without really knowing what outcomes we're after, right? And I would go as far as saying even conversations around which technologies we need to be able to onboard are also had without an understanding of what outcomes are needed, right? And this historically, I'm sure you can relate to it, and maybe you know, some of the uh, listeners can relate to the fact that when you don't know what exact business outcomes you're after, freshness of dashboards, uh, accuracy of machine learning models, which technologies you're gonna select, you're gonna swirl on those conversations. You really don't have a North Star that helps you define whether you've actually got it, right? It, what is the right level of freshness? What is the right level of update frequency? What are the quality metrics that we should have in the dashboard, right? What, what is a quality dashboard, right? Um, what is the right level of accuracy in your models and what's the accepted level of error, 
right? All models are going to have error, but what's, what's, the, what's the right level of error? All these things cannot be defined unless you clearly and in quantified terms understand the outcome that you're after. Once you understand the outcome you're after, everything else falls into place. All conversations around, you know, do you want to go with Hadoop or do you want to go with Snowflake? Do you want to go with, uh, you know, ADLS? You know, all these things, it's game set and math. You don't swirl around our technical conversations. The level of quality in your dashboards as well as refresh frequency suddenly becomes clear as to what is acceptable and what's not. And so, so does accuracy in machine learning models. And so does a whole host of other design factors that go into the design of your analytics as well as data industry. Now, working backwards, at what point would we sort of relook at things from a feasibility standpoint? That is, maybe the data is just not available to build that outcome. How do you how do you manage that, Kir? Yeah, so this is where you know I spoke earlier about sort of an agile model um, that you know um, works collaboratively with the business. So in the past, the way things have happened is the business comes to you and says, hey, I need this dashboard. And then, you know, they'll actually define it. They'll actually presuppose the types of technical capabilities that are possible using, you know, I mean, this is no fault of theirs, but using sort of, you know, the, the whole business intelligence data warehouse model that they've been used to using for decades, right? What they don't know, and it's not their job to know, um, is that, you know, the, the analytics and data industry have moved on. There's so many other options available to meet their needs. So when they come to us and say, hey, I need this in my dashboard, or why don't you put this data set in your data warehouse? Um, in the past, what the data analytics team do is, yeah, aye, aye, sir, let's go and do exactly that without really knowing what it is they're trying to achieve, right? And so what happens is now you've got, you, you've got a situation, if you fast forward to, um, uh, you know, this agile model, you know, um, business strategy is changing all the time. Under the premise that the data analytics team has got a handle on what's going on with the data analytics industry and what's the latest and greatest that can be brought to bear. Um, if we are able to engage with the business at, around a conversation of what is your business outcome? Well, I need to increase revenue by X percentage points. What are the uh, business strategies that you want to be able to use to uh, increase that outcome. And as that business owner of that metric is talking, we in the room should be able to translate that into the right data initiatives as well as the right analytics initiatives. And I've gone as far as now creating agile teams that consist of four, four people. The first person is um, you know, uh, the business owner or the product owner, if you will, on the business side saying, I am responsible for increasing revenue by five percentage points by the end of the year, okay? Um, and, you know, that product owner uh, that, has been, that has been assigned also has a healthy appreciation for what data analytics can bring to them. But in concert with that person who understands the acceptable strategy boundaries on the business side, we also have in the room a data expert. They understand the landscape of data available at the company. Also what's available in the third party universe, right? They understand that data, not just in terms of domains of data, but they also understand the frequency of that data, the latency of that data, the amount of history available. They understand for each attribute, 
you know, um, what's being managed and governed and what's not, and what's about to be governed and what's not, right? So they understand that data landscape. We also have an analytics experts who understand this is the types of analytics we are, uh, these are the types of analytics we are able to perform today. But more importantly, this is what the industry has given us the ability to do, but we don't have commensurate use cases identified yet. And so combine those two skill sets along with this business um, uh, owner. And now you can pretty much whiteboard out a solution to their business outcome, okay? And you'll know in that session uh, pretty early on whether you've got the data to do it or not, whether you've got the analytics framework in place to do it or not. And if you don't, whether, whether there is a, even a solution to that analytics uh, problem in the industry. Furthermore, at that point, you know, once you co-ideated a solution, co-ideation being the, uh, the, the, the key issue here, because um, it's not only, you know, as part of the solution, we should not only be ideating what data is available in what form it's needed and what analytics is available and in what form we need it. And, and you know, the underlying technical infrastructure required to house that data and query that data and, and you know, model accuracy and all those types of things. But as part of the solution, there are two other aspects that we need to be able to ideate, and these fall squarely on the business side. The first is, who on the business side is gonna be using it, and are they skilled to use this analytical output? And the output could be you know, a dashboard of some sort. The output could be an alert in a call center system that's saying somebody's about to attrite, right? They need to understand how to use it. And so data fluency, Right. Who needs to be fluent in data and what are the standards of data fluency required in order to ensure that this analytical system will actually be used in the right way so as to create the desired outcome? Because you may have the best technical system, but if people are not trained on it, forget about it. Right? I mean, you may have the best, uh, fastest airplane out there, but if you don't have the pilot who can fly it, it's not going anywhere. So that's been, that's been an issue that's plagued uh, our industry for quite a bit. We don't design for you know, the type of fluency that will be required on the business side and getting concurrence with the business leaders that, okay, we need to mount a, you know, as part of our requirements for this project, here's the fluency requirements on the business side. And the second thing we need to be able to design for on the business side is, are there any process changes that can be enabled to make, you know, better processes on the business side? Like, for instance, if, if, if you now know that somebody's about to attrite, right? are we going to change our process in the call centers to um, not just alert uh, the, the, the corresponding call center rep that this person's about to try? Because what we found is that, you know, just doing that across all, uh, everybody in the call center is not going to result in the outcome of trying to save people, right? But what is going to result in the outcome of saving people is changing the process to where you now direct these calls to a, uh, a safe team to where these safe teams have superpowers that you cannot give the entire call center. And you'll find that all of a sudden this analytic that you created helps in routing the call to the right, right safe team and suddenly your save rates go through the roof where they wouldn't have gone through uh, the roof otherwise. And we actually witnessed that. So th those are the two other aspects that this agile team needs to design for, okay? But in that session itself, it becomes very clear, you know, if you have the right data, if you've got the analytics and where the gaps are. Um, and then of course, the last member uh, uh, to have in that agile team is the data economist who then says, okay, under what conditions are we gonna be able to meet the outcome? And uh, they create sort of the mathematical twin to help model out um, 
the situation. Because you may have a great whiteboard solution, but um, the math may prove out that, yeah, this is really not going to result in what we thought it would. Are there any examples or you know, things that you can share of um, how you can help build a better data understanding, especially among the business owners? How do you encourage data literacy so these conversations are much more effective and convergent? Yeah, so I found that a lot of companies will try and um, create sort of a data literacy program that is overarching across the entire company and, and will make it very generalized. Things like, hey, you need to understand how to uh, consume a dashboard. Well, that, that may be sort of, um, you know, something that certain roles need to do, but not all roles need to do, right? And so where I've found a lot of success is in segmenting your business user base as well as your technical user base into the types of capabilities uh, that segment will need when it comes to data and analytics. Um, not all groups will need to understand how to read a dashboard. And, and, you know, as basic as it sounds to you know, gain the skill of reading a dashboard, there are people out there that don't, don't know how to do that and we need to respect that. But yet what they bring to the table is a solid understanding of the business environment, right? And so if we were able to pair these people up with a solid understanding of the dashboard, I mean, imagine the type of outcomes they'd be able to achieve, great. But you've got other types of people that need to understand where do you go to find the data? Um, where do you, go, you know, how do you actually go um, uh, transpose that data into usable form? How do you assess the qual whether you've actually got quality in that data? Um, how do you actually, what are the practices, and this actually probably applies to everybody in the company, is what are the practices you want to undertake to ensure that your data is protected? Um, how are we going to ensure that privacy regulations, you know, like GDPR, for instance, demands that, hey, uh, you can forget me. So, you know, uh, how do we train the marketing user segment who is very used to doing, you know, marketing segmentation has lists on their laptop. Um, uh, you know, how are we going to help them identify the people that now have asked to be deleted from their lists, right? So that they don't get mailed. So there are these types of, um, so literacy is not just about understanding the data. It's also around practices uh, around data, how to keep it safe, how to keep it uh, private. And also, um, how do you actually go about creating data assets in such a way that you're not accelerating data sprawl across the, uh, the entire company? So that is what the literacy, or I, I prefer to say fluency, just because you know, if you're not literate, then what are you? You're illiterate and you know, that's a pejorative and you don't want to start up on that footing with your business. Um, so you know, the, the, that's sort of how to think about it, where I found success is in segmenting the user base. Um, and then in terms of uh, sort of the different, the, the other way to look at fluency is if you consider each person, right? Each person after the, uh, the, the data analytics system has been built needs to be able to, to, to take information or that data through a certain set of steps before they're able to achieve an outcome. And here are the steps. The first step is you know, the appropriate segments that we've identified need to be able to uh, use the tool at hand. It could be a dashboarding tool, it could be a self-service tool, it could be, you know, Excel, whatever you've chosen. They need to be able to use their tool of choice. And 
be able to translate what they're seeing in that tool into an insight. Okay, that's the first thing the fluency program needs to enable to the right segment. And in some cases, that is just point and clicking. In other cases, that's how do you find the data? How do you, how do you, how do you prepare the data? How do you then create the dashboards? Depending on the segment, that, that can go deep or it can be shallow. Okay. After, after you gain the insight, um, the right business teams need to then be able to translate that insight into some kind of an implication. And that mostly requires business knowledge. Right, it, it, you don't really need too much uh, data fluency skills at that for that for that second phase. It, it's mostly okay, understanding the implications there, and that is where what they've been hired for on a daily basis, meaning their business skills, really kicks in. But once they've understood the implication, they now need to be able to effectively tell a story with their data. Right, so this is where effective data data storytelling comes in, and that is a data fluency skill that we need to enable across the company too, and so for the right segments, and so this is where they need to be able to take the data, be able to create the right representations of data either in PowerPoint or within that BI tool, and then be able to tell a very convincing story around it, so have the right soundtrack around it, and then once they've finished sort of that phase where now they've um, uh, you know, being able to tell the story to the right teams, right? Um, they then need to be able to guide these teams once they've galvanized the action to then guide that action towards achieving the business outcome. And that is mostly a leadership skill that these business people will bring. Um, I don't know that data fluency has much of a role in that except to basically inform how the action is going. And then uh, once again, result in storytelling so you can communicate and uh, uh, what is it, uh, influence and inspire the troops um, as, to, as to how the journey is coming along. And so that's typically the journey from having a tool available on the technical side and you know, us celebrating that we had a go live and all these other things now need to be able to fall into place before the outcome is achieved. So that's how I think about data fluency is it's pretty multidimensional, but you need to make sure that you've, you've segmented user base. It doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. When we talk about the um, the data strategy, right, we talked a lot from the top-down standpoint, right, going from the business need and working backwards, right. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on the bottom-up uh, approach, that is just looking at data and looking for opportunities. Do, do you have thoughts and perspectives in that category? Yeah, I mean, the, in fact, it is using that approach that, um, resulted in me kind of in 2005 saying there's got to be a better way. The issue I have with the bottom-up approach is that, you know, um, you, know you, you can end up finding a way to use that data 60,000 different ways. But, you know, at the end of the day, we have to recognize that this data is being used in service of a business outcome. And so if you've got a set of data, like, you know, I've got customer data and you're going to then ideate how this data can be used in its myriad of ways. Um, you know, what I've found is that you can come up with a ton of ways, but the business will only be accepting of the way that they feel is going to attach to their strategy. And so it is exactly the bottom up approach that has been used uh, for decades, at least in my world, right? Um, 
uh, in the 90s, we used to build data warehouses saying, yeah, look at all this cool data we have. Let's go build out a model and then build it and they shall come. Well, nobody ended up coming, right? And a lot of these data warehouses, right, they're, they're saying out there, three tries, three million dollars, three failures. Well, the reason is, is because of the bottom-up approach, right? Um, we've got to make darn sure that the business that funds these types of initiatives and, and actually creates the value from these types of initiatives by using them, right, using the technical output, um, are mentally wired to do so. Now, that, so, so, so that's my generalized um, feeling of a bottom-up approach. Now, I, the bottom-up approach does have a spot in one area. And I would say that's in initially priming the pump with the business with regards to what data is available and what types of outcomes could even be possible with that data so that they can then begin to figure out which outcomes they want to be able to deal with first, second, third, fourth, fifth um, with the data that we've got ahead. So it's a great way to prime the pump, the bottom-up approach. But once you prime that pump, um, you've got to quickly attach to an outcome. Otherwise, you know, all the other conversations we had before around which technology we're going to use, what's the right level of, uh, you know, acceptable error in our models, all these questions kind of, you know, will swirl and we won't get anywhere. Yeah. So to you, uh, in this broader conversation, you know, we touched on people process technology as it maps into the data strategy. Would you have insights on applying the strategy from the org design or a team design uh, standpoint in terms of specific ways you organize the teams to be effective? Yeah, so um, I've done a lot of work in that area since, again, since 05, right? Um, so really, um, when a new CDO gets started, right, the typical environment is one where there's a lot of ad hoc data analytics occurring. Um, and typically, it's the business that the, that is uh, that owns these teams, and it's the business that is funding uh, their the, the sort of siloed uh, technical initiatives, right? And they don't know that you know their colleague in the other line of business is trying to do the same thing almost, but you know they've got a whole separate team doing that, they've got a whole separate tech stack doing, it and so forth, right? That's kind of the environment you walk into. But very quickly, um, we need to be able to convert sort of that siloed uh, work environment into something that is more integrated, that results in lower operating costs of you know, data analytics around the company with higher value being delivered, right? And so how do you do that? Well, the starting point is to you know, engage in the creation of a data analytics strategy, right? Um, a lot, you know, uh, data analytics strategy, you know, being defined like we talked about earlier, right? It is, it is, you know, a list of data uh, initiatives, analytics initiatives, uh, integrated in uh, creating the business outcomes uh, desired at hand. Um, but that very quickly will decompose into the need for well, what data do we have? And a lot of these companies are very, very fragmented and have decades of technical debt out there. And to figure out, um, you know, what data do we even have? You know, do we even have this data like we talked about earlier uh, to, to, to really help create this initiative or this outcome? Um, that's a question that's coming asked very early on. And so in parallel with creating a data uh, and analytic strategy team, right? And the, the team uh, dynamics we talked about earlier, right? We want the business to set aside one person 
whose full-time job it is to help uh, manage in, 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 in you know, um, they are essentially the business strategist that, that's, that's the right-hand person for that line of business executive that understands the business strategy, but also has an appreciate, healthy appreciation for um, data analytics, right? And so, because the business has a choice, they, they could actually meet that strategy without data analytics, or they could try with. And oftentimes what they find is that if we do with, we can do it at a much lower cost and achieve a much, much uh, uh, a bigger outcome at a, at a much, much faster pace, right? So it's the leverage of data. So you need that person to be identified on the business side within each line of business. And they're essentially our product owner. Uh, combine that sort of um, on, on, on the data analytics team side, I've got a data strategy team. And that data strategy team is, is initially starts off you know, servicing all lines of business, but you know, over time the, the, we begin to focus on each line of business um, as the volume increases, but they're composed of a data expert, analytics expert, and a data economist, right? You have that at the get-go. But in parallel, um, I've got what I call a data supply chain team, right, or person to begin. And they need to be able to ferret out all of the data in the company to begin to help understand what data is flowing where. And more often than not, if you're a customer-focused company, right, and there are companies out there that are not, you know, like grocers um, uh, or, or the, you know, suppliers to the grocers, more importantly, right? They don't really um, have a lot of the end customer data, right? They're more focused on the item. But most companies are focused on customer data. So I would say, okay, create a team that is responsible, because this could be a one-person team, uh, that is responsible for understanding the data supply chain uh, around each domain of data. Customer to begin with, if you're a customer-focused organization, and um, item or product, if, if, if you don't deal with end customers and you know, you're, you're part of the supply chain. And very quickly understand you know, what data is flowing where and marry that data with your business processes so you've got context for the data. Because it is the business process married with how the data flows that's then going to quickly allow you to determine where are the authoritative sources for let's say data birth, or customer first name, customer last name, those types of things. And understanding that data supply chain is not a fast process. It is very time consuming. And in my opinion, it's what singularly results in a lot of data governance programs failing. So do that in parallel and create a team around that. The other team you wanna create very early on is a uh, data governance team, right? And get them started. Uh, you know, because very quickly after you've co-ideated a data initiative and analytics initiative, the question is going to be, all right, where's the data coming from? And, you know, that's an authoritative source problem. And, uh, you know, what's the right level of quality and how are we going to manage that? Do we even have the right level of quality today? Is there going to be a lot of work to get it done? These, these types of questions are going to emerge as part of initiative design. And so you need the governance team to manage that along with the data supply chain people very quickly. So let's get those three things galvanized. But once you've got the initiative designed, um, ahead of the initiative design completing, you need to start creating sort of a platform team that understands, you know, are we going to have sort of a, a data warehouse and BI model, or are we going to create a data lake? So I've, I, I actually subscribe to the idea of sort of a data-driven operating model in the company where you want all data, you know, of course, in a prioritized way, being streamed into a central location Right, which is essentially what we call a data data um, lake, um, central uh, location, 
And then from that central location, you can then begin to assess quality in these types of things on that data on a regular basis, right? Do quality control just like you would in a factory. And then downstream, you can clean up the data and put data into its various forms, enable self-service data preparation, self-service analytics. Um, and so I see a data lake team being needed, right? That, that's a technical infrastructure team. Um, the other thing, uh, team out there is you want a master data team, right? Because master data management is very different to data governance. Data governance is all around policies, processes, procedure to help create quality around the data. The master data team is out there identifying what master data is and helping integrate that data into the flows so that we are now ensuring consistency of you know, master data sets around the company. There is an integration with data governance teams, but I'd like to see them as different. The other team out there is traditionally what I call the BI team. Um, I gotta come up with a better word for that, so I'd love your help there. Um, but traditionally the BI team is, are the people who the business users have gone to to create sort of the visualization assets, be it a report, be it a dashboard and so forth. The reality is I'm of the belief that this whole model of a business user coming to a centralized team to create a report is old. It just doesn't scale. Because if you think about it, um, you've got, you know, the more business users subscribe to the idea of becoming data driven, right? And more we get them excited about it, the bottleneck is us, right? We're out there uh, trying as hard as we can, you know, the team, and I've been in this position where I'm, I'm missing birthdays, I'm missing anniversaries in the family just to help create this report. And the reality is almost always, we cannot create the report in a time frame that allows the business users to be able to make a data-driven decisions in the time frame we need. And so they're forced to make uh, gut-based decisions and using our report that has been created with so much pain, right? Using that report to essentially validate the gut feel. So it's a very expensive model and it worked. That model worked maybe 20 years ago when the, uh, the pace of these types of requests was slow and the domain of data required was very small. It worked. But now we need to think differently. And so um, I actually think of it as a self-service analytics team that's needed. And that too um, is kind of misinterpreted. You, I, you don't, don't, don't think of self-service as, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna release the whole world on Tableau. Because self-service by itself um, accelerates data fracture. So everything your data governance team is trying to do is gonna be undone immediately if you unleash your business users on Tableau by itself. So I think, I think these self-service solutions like Power BI, Tableau, Excel, you know, are great solutions. But um, what I like to think of is we've got, we've got basics by which to go about creating a complete self-service solution for everybody in the business that helps the business find their own data, inspect their own data, procure their own data, um, prepare their own data. Now with the advent of uh, you know, uh, artificial intelligence facilities within data prep tools, and then visualize their own data, and then communicate the insights to people. All those six capabilities that every business user is itching to have and to, uh, 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 to date that have been fragmented can now be delivered by this data lake team, right? And we bring disparate technologies together with a nice unified UI, right? Using the self-service analytics team. And so the self-service analytics team's role moves from creating these reporting assets over to enabling data fluency around the organization and watching what data sets are being used by whom to 
right, uh, to solve what types of problems, right? So that team's role begins to shift in this new world. But I think we've got all the components now available to be able to create complete self-service for every type of or every segment of user. Um, we just need to be able to integrate all of these disparate, you know, cataloging tools, data prep tools, self-service um, visualization tools, um, Slack, e email, all these things into a unified uh, tool that uh, now business users can use as opposed to leaving them disparate. Because the moment you leave them disparate, it is going to fracture your data landscape and data governance is not going to work. You're going to be working against yourself. So the team I'd like to think of is not just a data lake team, but sort of a self-service analytics team whose mandate has changed from creating assets or, or creating reports to enabling the organization and, and, and ensuring that the right data sets are being used around the company. And then of course, you've got your um, data strategy team like I talked about earlier. Um, and then you've got the operating team for your data lake environment. You've got the architecture team that helps architect the entire environment too. And then, you know, you've got your governance team that latches into your privacy uh, uh, framework, you know, your privacy organization, which typically doesn't report into a chief data officer. You've got your security uh, capabilities that you're working on in concert with your CISO. You know, this is a perfect segue into the self-service uh, piece that, you know, you, you started actually addressing uh, very nicely in the previous response itself. Kairu, when you think about self-service, what is the balancing act between making everything available versus I would basically say putting guardrails or maybe protecting certain data sets which should not be broadly available? Yeah, so that is a very important issue, at least, uh, you know, given my lineage in financial services, right? Um, so here's what it comes down to is because we've got different types of um, data access frameworks, security access frameworks into data, depending on which environment is storing the data. Um, it creates the potential for business users to gain access to information that in one system they don't access to have access to, but in another system they do, right? So in one system, when I log into the system or uh, authoritative system for uh, trades, I can see, you know, I, I'm actually not authorized to see those trades, let's say. But that system feeds another system downstream, but I've got access to that downstream system. It's the exact same data. And so I can log in that system and now suddenly see it and I can go take that data and do all kinds of analytics on it. Or, you know, um, if I've got a sinister mind, I could, I could, I could uh, you know, use it in sinister ways, unfortunately. And that's happened. So the question is, um, how do you kind of, you know, to, to your question, um, you know, create this balancing act where you want to provide self-service to everybody, but at the same time, make sure that everybody's doing it in a secure way and in a way that does not open up risk for the corporation. It comes down to making sure that you've got now a corporate-wide access framework, right? Where all these subsystems that have data of any sort, and that includes not just the systems that create data, but it's also things like Excel. It's also your email systems. All of these systems that have the potential of um, storing or moving or you know, sharing data of any sort now need to have a singular access framework. Now, that idea, while it sounds great, is not easy to implement. But until you have that implemented, 
there is always going to be a loophole for somebody to come in um, and what I call it is system arbitrage where they've got favorable uh, access rights on one system and they know that that data is going to that one system and they've got access to that system as a result, right? Until that system arbitrage goes away, you will always have people accessing data that they don't um, have the rights to access. And so you need to ensure that that access framework occurs across the board. But now, how do you also balance that with self-service? Well, this is where the earlier model I talked about really kicks in, is that today, when I need to, let's say, you know, examine a little piece of data uh, and, and get, make some transactional sense out of it, sum up a couple numbers, look at you know, total revenue for my area, these types of things, what I'll do is export that data from you know, a system or you know, ask you, Sandeep, hey, Sandeep, can you send me the data about X, Y, and Z, and what happens? I get sent an Excel file, and those Excel files have exploded around a corporation and nothing stops me from sharing data with you that you, know, you or somebody else may not have, should not have access to. I don't even know you shouldn't have access to it, right? So you can't blame people for sharing. They need to do it for their job. So what's the right structure that, 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 that creates balance? Well, in my opinion, the only idea I've been able to come up with is number one, have a unified access framework, but number two, um, we need to be able to have an end-to-end self-service model that's integrated. And the missing link up to now was a self-service data prep environment that is as easy to use as Excel, okay? And we're now getting there. And so think of it this way. If I, as a business user, now need access to data, rather than picking up the phone and calling you or calling somebody else for access, you know, hey, send me that file. I should now have an environment that's so easy to use, almost Amazon-like, where you know, I didn't have to go get trained on Amazon, but you know, out of these millions of products, I can go find my one product, I can inspect it, then I can procure it, and then you know, I can get it, uh, you know, use it at home. But why can't I do that with data? Out of millions of data items, why can't I go acquire my one or two pieces of data? Go even find them. Well, I can, right, with the advent of data catalogs. If I had a data catalog, which really should be the output of a great governance program, is you start filling out a catalog attribute by attribute, right, based upon priorities of my data initiatives, right, uh, my, my data strategy, I should be able to fill out my catalog based upon these initiatives, uh, and, and over time, I'll have the company's data reflected in the catalog. Well, go to the catalog as a starting point, go search for it. You found your data, you see representative samples, and you can only see those samples if the access framework says, okay, you're allowed access to this data set, right? Um, or, or that data element, right? And so once I've found that data, assuming I've got access to it, I should be able to procure it. But what does procuring mean? It doesn't mean that I'm gonna be able to export it into my Excel spreadsheet. That should be gone. What it should do is when you hit the export button, it should be able to push that data into a self-service data prep environment, right? which has a UI that just look and feels like Excel. But the reality is that um, this, this data prep environment has AI in the background and it's constantly learning. It's learning from the entire enterprise. It even knows that you and I are in the same organization and that when this data file lands, it knows that, oh my gosh, out of these 50 columns, 46 are duplicates. So it says, hey, here, do you wanna delete um, you know, 
45 of the columns because they're duplicate. Yes, duh, I didn't even know this. Hey, Kier, um, one of the columns uh, is a zip code column and it's missing a bunch of zip codes, but I've got city and state. I can cross-reference that to a postal database that I have and, and, and uh, fill in the zip codes. Do you want me to do it? Yes, as a marketer, that'd be huge. Saves me so much time, right? Um, Hey, here, um, typically when people analyze this data set, like your colleague Sandeep, when he's analyzed this data set, here are the metrics he's created. Do you want, do you want to examine the, the logic in those metrics? Yes, let me take a look. Do you want to use them? Yes, done. The point is these data prep environments um, now allow me as a non-technical business user to be able to very rapidly get past some of the big bottlenecks I had in the past, which is I don't have the technical skill to uh, clean up the data. Well, the AI in the background combined with what all your the users around you are doing is now smart enough to basically propose to you some of the cleaning actions you should be able to go through, right? And now all you're doing as a business user is, is hitting yeses and nos. Now, of course, with the odd cleaning action, if you need to do it, you know, you've got your team to be able to go to, but that volume to the team should be minimal, right? But now that I've cleaned up the data, I, I now have, I'm sharing institutional information around uh, who, you know, what types of metrics are people creating around this? So now it suddenly speeds my ability to get to the right level of insight. And not only that, because of the common access framework, you might have defined a metric, but you've got certain security rights that I don't have. And so I can use your logic, but my security rights will not be applied on top of that logic, right? So using this data prep environment, I can aggregate, I can do all kinds of minimal, you know, if I just want to see how many transactions that I have in this quarter, I can just search for the right data, put in the data prep environment. I now very quickly can do it. I don't need to do it in Excel anymore. The best part is all of the steps I took to get to my final result are being recorded. And so what is the difference between that recording and an ETL script that goes into a data warehouse? Nothing, absolutely nothing. And so the best part is I've got all these recordings happening across everybody that's using this data across the company. So now I can get dashboards on what data has been used for what purposes, what kinds of metrics are being created. And best of all, at the point I need to take my personal analysis, and begin to share that with the corporation, which is essentially pushing that um, my logic into a data warehouse ETL, so that data warehouse can now uh, house that piece of data exactly the way I intended, with a nice, you know, um, uh, metadata-based UI on top, like a Microsoft your business objects, which is a common way of people, uh, you know, getting data off of a data warehouse. Before, I used to have to go to a team and they used to take uh, requirements from me, it used to take weeks or months to get that done. Why can't I now right click and just send them my requirements electronically? And if all that data is coming from sanctioned sources and I've used governed methods by which to create my aggregate uh, metrics, why can't I take that into production immediately? So now I've cut down the amount of time it takes for me to share the information from literally you know, weeks and months to qu and quarters down to literally hours. So to me, this new self-service world is one that completely should revolutionize how it is we go about sharing data and actually accelerates the sharing of data. But with the unified access framework, um, I can now ensure that, okay, people are seeing things, not only sharing, but people are seeing things they should. But more importantly, I, as a BI leader, 
can now watch and see what people are doing and ensure that everything's kosher. I know if data gets exported, who did it? When it was done, what data came out of my data prep environment if I want to enable that, right? If my data is shared, it's going to be shared from the data prep environment. Right? I know who got it and which company, what data elements were created and what's, what's happening right now. So in my world, the data prep environment plays a very uh, central role with regards to controlling sprawl and actually enabling sprawl in a controlled way such that it allows business users to get stuff done in a very rapid manner, much, much more rapid than coming to my organization saying, hey, can you create this report? So that is the balancing act. That is how you implement the balancing act between security and privacy and uh, enabling self-service. You actually ac accelerate self-service while at the same time you enable better um, security controls and privacy controls too. Imagine deleting, uh, somebody says, hey, forget about me. Hey, forget about me. That means I am now not, not typically going to delete that record, but I'm going to anonymize it. I can anonymize it through the entire supply chain that users have created across their millions of personal data sets out there through one keystroke. I think as we wrap up this podcast, it would be great to um, get your insights on as you look for data leaders, the leaders that um, and that you recruit in your team and the leaders that you interview, it would be helpful for listeners to know, I mean, what are some of the things that you're look, looking for? Yeah, I think, um, at least from a personality standpoint, um, you want to hire a leader that's got a clear sense of purpose around data, right? Um, and the purpose that I'm looking for is business focused. They need to understand that their role is not in just creating cool implementations. They play a critical role in enabling a business outcome with these technical implementations. So are they about just the technology or are they about using that technology and being passionate about achieving the outcome also? It's that second purpose that I want to test for. Because unless you have that second purpose, we will continue as data practitioners and analytics practitioners to be recognized tactically and not strategically. And I absolutely, in my heart of hearts, every cell of my body believe that data and analytics is the secret sauce to enabling outside business outcomes. And your leaders need to believe the same too. So that sense of purpose is critical. Of course, beyond that, from a personality standpoint, you need to make darn sure that the team, all leaders, are aligned around the concept of respect. Why is that, you know, it's a word, great, and everyone thinks they respect, but I don't think so. People, are, are, are very, you know, most leaders are very good at creating an environment where there is outward respect towards people, okay? They'll, they'll be courteous, they'll be kind, they'll be civil to people. And that goes some way with regards to helping their teams work together. But we already know from the startup world that unless your team members truly internalize that I want Sandeep to be successful no matter what. Like I've got Sandeep's back, 
right? I really, really like him and I wanna make darn sure that he succeeds no matter what. Unless I, as a team member or as a leader, will have the same feeling for my, uh, uh, you know, colleague, my, my, my fellow leader, my fellow team member, um, we are not going to get to a point where we have true innovation. True innovation comes from the serendipitous moments where I'm going to share with you a half-baked idea and you kind of take that and help further it. And then we have this round-robin conversation where the innovation just exceed, you know, excels in four reforms and um, you know, forms itself 60 different ways and finally we get an aha. That is, how, that is how innovation happens, okay? And I've seen it time and time again work that way in startups, right? Um, uh, people have these serendipitous moments. And so the question is, how can the leader enable a team to get to that level of interaction? And it comes down to respect, but it's not external respect for each other. You need to quickly convert that external respect into um, what I, what's, what's the right word? It's this, it's this internal, um, uh, it's the desire to really, uh, I, I forget the word, I'm at a loss of words, but um, it's this desire to really ensure that my common team members are, oh, it's camaraderie. There you go, camaraderie. I have a sense of camaraderie in the team to where um, everybody on the team is open to sharing half-picked ideas and they know that failure is okay. They know that everyone's got their back, but they also know that there is a sense of purpose on this team towards the outcome. Nobody cares about the technology for technology's sake. It's all about the outcome. And so the leader needs to be able to foster that type of a respectful environment at, you know, th that really moves itself towards, towards that sort of safe zone where everybody's co-ideating, okay? And then the last piece is the leader needs to ensure that they trust the people they hire on their team and they trust their colleagues to be able to have enough, to be able to give their colleagues enough autonomy, to give their team members enough autonomy to get the job done. Because nobody comes in to work every day and says, wow, I'm just waiting for the next set of instructions from my leader. Right? <laughs> nobody wakes up. They, they all have, everybody is smart enough to really, you know, as, the, as they're driving into work. Remember those days when you used to actually commute to work, right? Uh, Pre-COVID. Uh, you know, in the commute, you get excited about, you know, these are the things I want to get done today, right? Well, everybody's got these desires. So the leader needs to be able to be hands-off enough to be able to allow them the autonomy to get things done. And what that means from a leader's perspective also is they need to be very clear in the goal. A lot of leaders, you know, feel they may be clear, but Clarity comes about not just in pointing out what the goal is, but the major milestones and how the teams will work together uh, to achieve that goal, laying out those intermediate milestones required in a cooperative way. So those are the three things I look for evidence with when I'm hiring a leader uh, on my team, is that they have the ability to get those things done. Now, testing for competency, uh, you know, if you're hiring a head of data governance, and it comes down to philosophical alignment, right? Um, there's many different ways you can do data governance, but I've come across the feeling that, you know, um, data, most data governance programs have failed. And they failed because there's this overarching uh, feeling that data governance programs are out there to police people, and nobody wants to be policed. Um, and they failed because we've got this thing called a data owner, 
help, it means that if you're the data owner, or rather it means that if you're not the data owner, you're not responsible for anything. And guess what? Most of the companies are not owners of data. Only one person is, is the owner of customer data. And so that one poor soul is apparently speaking and trying to get the entire company galvanized, which to me is just a failing model. To me, everybody owns the data, but everybody plays three different roles in that data. So the conversation I want to have with the data governance leader is, what's their philosophy? And do they agree with this approach? And if they fail, where did they fail? And um, have they come to sort of realizing that at the end of the day, it's these two things about data governance that have failed. So agreeing with each leader, be it the, 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 the leader of the data lake program or the leader of the self-service program, right? All of these areas are going through change. And I've actually, over the years, have come up with the fact that these old ways don't work. So if they're wedded in the old ways and they don't, you know, they haven't really um, seen the new approaches, then, you know, uh, I'd have pause there. So I want, I, want, I, want, I want to basically test for sort of these new ways of thinking, right? If they're wedded to the old ways of BI, which, which we've proven are unscalable, right? How effective is that meter gonna be in my organization that is trying to enable self-service? Not much, right? So they, they at least have to be able to see how the old ways have failed and be able to now be able to, you know, appreciate the new ways and have a sense of purpose around how the new ways will actually create business value um, you know, and, and the outside business outcomes for the business. So those, uh, I look more for character and philosophical alignment around the technical issues, um, you know, and of course the experience need to have, uh, it needs to have led to the actual um, philosophical uh, approaches that these individual leaders are trying to espouse. That, that's really what I look for. To wrap up, Thank you so much, Kayur, for taking time for this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, very, very poignant, very well thought out questions too. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Our mission with the podcast is to share data and AI knowledge and experiences to create a data-driven world that provides equal opportunities for everyone. Leave us your comments on how we can make the show more valuable for you. Also rate the show so it can help us reach to broader audience.